Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of intimate partner violence and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This is Method and Madness, Episode 68, Misdeeds, Amanda Pierce. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. Amanda Pierce was born on March 29, 1983. She was just 32 years old when she was removed from life support at a hospital in Sherman, Texas. She had arrived there on May 14, 2015, when emergency medical personnel were informed that she had attempted suicide. Her surviving family member, her big sister Kimberly, arrived at the hospital shortly after and at first was open-minded to the notion that Amanda could have tried to end her life. But then, pieces of a dark puzzle began to fall into place. And that's what brings us to today's case. A woman's death is labeled a suicide despite evidence of murder. Let's dive in. My name's Kimberly Mullins, and I am Amanda's oldest sister. I am 12 years older than her. There's four of us siblings, so she's the baby. We are from Grayson County, Texas, and it's kind of where Amanda's story takes place, is our little small town, Texas. Kimberly has suffered a lot of loss. She is the surviving member of her family of six, Mom, Dad, and all three of her siblings have tragically passed away far too soon. And it's what happened in 2015 that is the reason Kimberly's here. This was the year that her youngest sibling, Amanda, died. The cause of death, officially, was suicide. But Kimberly says that's not the true story, and she is now Amanda's voice. She just had this fun personality. She's very, just a playful kind person. She's always smiling. Like I said, she was the baby of the four siblings. I was 12 years old when she was born. And it's hard not to talk about my sister Vivian when I talk about Amanda because they were very close in age. Vivian and her were like two years apart. So I kind of was their little mother hen from the time they were born, just kind of committed to protecting them from our crazy home life. They were domestic violence, addiction, you know, just a lot of toxic environment that we all had to live through. So once they were born, they were just, became my little babies. You know, I, I mothered them. They, I don't know, most, both of my parents actually came from a very dysfunctional family. So it's 
kind of started listening to generations and I just wanted to break that with them. Like I really wanted to give them something different and I would, I was very overly protective of them. I feel like Amanda was just born with this big smile on her face. Like she was always a happy baby. She was always laughing. Growing up as a little kid, she was always the one that was kind of bringing the jokes to the room and making everybody sure everybody else was happy, making sure everybody else was smiling. It's like she connected with all creatures, like other children, animals. She was such an animal person growing up. She used to have this little baby chicken, and she would put it up on our piano, and she would play little songs and sing to it. <laughs> she was, It was so cute. And she's probably about six years old. But that's just kind of how she was. You know, she raised a baby deer. She always had kittens or dogs. You know, she seemed like I said, I got married in 1991 and I had my son in 1995. And she was just like in love with him, my son, Cole. And she was such, such a character with him, but she would play with him, always babysitting. She'd always dress up and play dress up with him and, just make everybody laugh. I mean, that's probably the bottom line. She's such a good-hearted person. By the time Amanda started high school, big sister Kimberly was in her mid-20s, a busy mom to a toddler. When she was in high school, she ended up getting pregnant with Jordan, her first son. And she was such a good mother. She was really a good mother. And I think I found out later that how much of a struggle she had with alcohol in high school. And she would tell me that Jordan actually saved her life. Had she not been pregnant, got pregnant with Jordan at 17, she, she doesn't think she'd have been there. But she had, I guess, wearing a lot of masks. I did not realize that was a lot of her. I didn't know she had those problems in high school. You know, even though we hung out all the time, she really just wanted to be a beautiful mama. I mean, she was just, I think she just wanted to be a good mama to her babies. Amanda's struggle with alcohol started as her coping mechanism for what was a difficult life. Although she tried her best to smile and care for others, Amanda's own stress and challenging life events were a lot to carry around. Still, she went on to become a hairstylist, but soon, family tragedy would strike and have long-term effects. It just seems like since my dad passed away in 2001 that we all just kind of went into survival mode. She was with him when he died. He had a stroke. She carried a lot of that burden that she had been arguing with him, just kind of bickering with him, and then he had walked outside and had a stroke. And so that was really, really hard on her. She was 17 or 18 because Jordan was a baby. And then, yeah, I think from there, survival. You know, my brother died in 2007 from a very unexpected, quick battle with a cancer. He was only 32. And she was living with my mom. So she kind of went in, took care of my mom. My mom was falling apart. My mom just unraveled. So her and Jordan were living with my mom at that time. And she worked, you know, her and Vivian were really close. And so after, you know, Brian died, her and Vivian, you know, were even closer. And they both lived with mom off and on at one point. And they were just 
she was took care of Vivian's kids. Vivian took care of Jordan. Like it was, they were just very close. She took care of mom. I mean, mom still worked. She, she did, but the girls were there and mom was just, just had a hard time getting over that death of my brother. She just, I don't think she, I don't think she ever got past it actually. Sadly, the family tragedies did not end there. In 2009, Kimberly's and Amanda's sister, 28-year-old Vivian, was living with her boyfriend, 33-year-old Damon Butler, in Calera, Oklahoma. Also living in the home were Vivian's two young children. The relationship was serious, but Damon soon got involved with drugs and alcohol, and things took a deadly turn. Vivian was being abused, both emotionally and physically, at the hands of her romantic partner, and she was planning on leaving him. The most dangerous time for a person living with an abuser is the time when they try to leave. It was January of 2009, and Vivian was home packing when Damon arrived and he confronted her. Later that day, Vivian's mother, 56-year-old Rebecca, also arrived at the home to speak with Vivian. Damon came to the door and informed Rebecca that her daughter had taken off. She was out walking around the neighborhood. He suggested that they hop into Rebecca's car so they could go looking for Vivian together. They went searching, but she was not anywhere in the area. Upon returning to the house, the two went inside, and that's when Damon attacked Rebecca, beating and stabbing her to death. She had been unaware that her daughter Vivian had been inside the whole time. Her lifeless body discovered later. That night, co-workers of Vivian's from the restaurant where she worked went looking for her. They hadn't seen the young mom in almost 24 hours. They knocked on her door. Damon answered, with blood stains on his clothing and a deep cut on his right finger. Both Vivian and her mother, Rebecca, had died from blunt and sharp trauma to the head and neck. Vivian's children were safe, being cared for at Rebecca's home during the time of the murders. Damon Butler denied involvement in the killings, but later confessed, pled guilty, and was convicted. He is now serving a life sentence without parole. Kimberly confronted him, her sister and mother's murderer, while he was behind bars, and she bravely asked him why he did it, to which he responded that he didn't want to lose Vivian. In the painful years since January of 2009, Amanda Pierce carried a lot of guilt, and not just about her father's death. She has another son. So Kendall was born like two months before mom and Vivian were murdered. So she just had a new newborn. And Kendall is now 14 years old. He's like six feet one. Such, such a precious little boy. Oh, so sweet. So again, you know, she carried a lot of guilt about mom, mom dying in that craziness with Damon because she had called mom and said, Hey, can you go by and check on Vivian? Because Damon's acting kind of weird. He's coming to get the kids. You know, can we, can you just drive by and check on her? And mom said, yeah, I'll go by there. So she went by and checked on him. 
Damon wouldn't let her go in the house. So they drove around. And mom called Amanda back and said, I'm going in because something's not right. And she's like, okay, call me back. Well, mom walked in. That's when he murdered mom. So she had carried not only my dad's death, but my mom's death, you know, after that. Like, she said if I hadn't have told her to go by, she'd still be alive. Like, she would say that all the time. And I was like, that just was not your burden to carry. I mean, Damon was leaving the trailer when my mom came. He had gasoline in the car. He had knives. I mean, he was he was going to my mother's house to kill everybody. That was his intentions with gasoline. So he was going, Vivian's kids, Amanda, her kids, and my mom. And that's where he was headed when my mother came to check on Vivian. So I feel like she saved their lives, in a sense. After the murders of her mother and her sister Vivian, Amanda moved into Kimberly's along with her husband, Dustin, and her two children, Jordan and Kendall, But by 2012, still carrying the heavy burden of guilt over her father's, mother's, and sister's deaths, things began to unravel for Amanda, and her drinking began to worsen. She left Dustin, and that's when she met Brian Espana, a man that worked at a local convenience store near Amanda's home. Brian was living in the U.S. illegally and had been for over 10 years. Kimberly told me, She doesn't even know his real name. Brian Espana was one of several aliases she later learned that he was using. She left Dustin and moved into her own apartment, I think around the end of 2012. And I think she'd already been kind of talking to Brian. And I think he was grooming her in that time. Because she would kind of go by his convenience store where he worked at. And he would just kind of flatter her and just... He was grooming. It was classic, classic grooming. You know, she kind of has self-esteem issues. You know, she, I think laughter and joking was kind of her, her coping mechanism to kind of, you know, just keep things light and not feel heavy. But I think he, I think he really sensed her weaknesses, that self-esteem. And he just charmed her and complimented her and I think it was a month or two like she would just go in there every day and she'd kind of get try to get that hit from him she would say oh this guy met this really nice guy so I think in the end you know he convinced her to leave her family and isolated her completely isolated her from everything and then the abuse started and then it's like 2013 to 15 is a big blur on where she was living how she was living I kind of had to step away from her for about six months because I was just trying to keep her alive. And I was on the struggle bus, you know, just trying to survive and take care of my family. And I just had to say, I can't do it anymore. And so that was pretty much very hard year. Amanda was being groomed, but she didn't know it. It's a sad and concerning method of manipulation and abuse. First, the abuser selects their target, sets them up, and begins the grooming process. They attempt to isolate their victim from their family, friends, basically anyone who may step in and try to intervene. Those people are seen as threats by the abuser. 
The abuser then gains trust, flatters their victim, showers them with affection and gifts, and words of affirmation. Once the isolation has taken place, the abuser begins to show their true colors, and the violent side starts to come out. The first time I met him, Dustin had called me and said, Brian beat your sister pretty bad. She was completely purple on the side of her face. She had a big knot on top of her head where he hit her. Her, bru- her ribs were all bruised. And I knew where he worked at. So I just drove by there and I went in and I just like, like, you put another hand on her, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, you can do not hurt my sister. No, I'm not going through this. And I had threatened him. And she found out and she was angry with me for confronting him. But he's like, oh, your sister's crazy. You know, it's her fault. Just kind of, but that was my first time I'd met him. But I could see him just putting the blame on her. And of course, I told him I will hunt you down. I will hurt you if you hurt her again. And I think that was the only time I met him there at the house when I came to bring her a birthday present in March and have her sign some documents so I could take care of Jordan. I met him then and he just was so like intrusive and like all over us and you know just wouldn't you could just tell it was very controlling but she was beat down by then you know March it was March of 2015 she was pretty beat down but he was very charming just very to me it's like she has sucked into this dark world and she just didn't know how to get out I mean now that I read the police reports I know that she tried many times and he would threaten to kill kill the family members who they threatened to kill her he would find her track her down kill her, the boys, uh, I mean, it was just like a constant coercion of fear. So she kept going back. Just reading, like, Detective Jones' report, I mean, people came forward one after the other saying, you know, he'd kill her, he's going to kill her. He chopped her up in little pieces like her mom and sister. You know, he was, I mean, he would just, that was a constant fear of her. Brian became so controlling that he wouldn't allow Amanda to have a phone. He broke the one that she did have, leaving her with no way to contact friends or family, which led to Amanda having to often borrow cell phones from neighbors and even from strangers. In March of 2015, Kimberly and her husband Justin were taking care of Amanda's son Jordan and needed some paperwork signed that would give them permission to provide the boy with medical attention if needed. They brought Amanda her birthday gift and... Her eyes filled with tears as she asked her big sister if she was taking Jordan away. Kimberly assured her that they weren't. Amanda was relieved and told Kimberly she was putting aside money to leave Brian once and for all so she could be back with her kids. She missed them terribly. Two months later, on Mother's Day, May 10th of 2015, Amanda's ex, Dustin, brought the kids over to Amanda's and Brian's so that they could visit with their mom. Dustin remained in the car, but later told Kimberly that Brian seemed controlling, and Dustin saw a large bruise on Amanda's chest. Despite only speaking with his ex a few times over the past six months, Dustin was aware of the abuse that was going on, including one instance where he saw Amanda with a swollen eye. He'd encouraged her to leave Brian, but she responded she didn't mind him hitting her. She didn't like him choking her. Let's take a break.
Are you a true crime advocate passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? You can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. It takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th to the 27th, 2023. This is a fantastic event. It features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray. Tara Newell and Collier Landry of the Survivor Squad podcast. And you'll get to see me hosting a panel with John Palmer, husband of Katie Palmer. Join us to discuss his journey towards justice. Again, that's True Crime Podcast Festival. Com. Hope to see you there. On Thursday, May 14th, Amanda didn't report for work, but she walked down the street to a local gas station around 10.30 a.m. to borrow a phone, and she called her ex, Dustin. She asked him for her friend Amber's phone number. Amber was just a car ride away in neighboring Oklahoma. She was Amanda's dearest friend from school, and someone that Amanda trusted, someone she had sought out in the past when she needed help. That morning, Amanda told Dustin she needed to be out of her house by 7 p.m. that night, and that the night before, she and her boyfriend Brian had gotten into an argument. Brian had apparently discovered the $100 that Amanda had hidden for her escape, and he took it. This escalated into more violence. Amanda also called her sister Kimberly and left a voice message that she needed Amber's number. Shortly after, she texted Kimberly to say she'd gotten the number, she loved her, and that she planned on calling later to speak with Jordan. Around noon, Amanda was able to connect with Amber, who said she got off at work and to call her back then. At 20 after 5, Amanda walked to her neighbor Ada's house and used her phone to call Amber to see if she could make arrangements to get out of the house before 7 o'clock. She told Amber she was scared to death and that Brian was going to choke and kill her and that he put his hands on her neck too many times. Amanda expressed how tired she was and that if Brian choked her again, he'd probably kill her. Amber was unable to pick Amanda up that night, but told her friend to go to work, to get her check, and that she'd pick her up the following day. At 7.14 p.m., a call to 911 was made from a phone belonging to David Adams, the roommate of Amanda and Brian. He'd lived at the residence for the past three months. Assistance was needed at the home on 1200 East Lamar in Sherman, Texas. The caller said there was an attempted suicide and a woman was unresponsive. The first responders, Corporal Sam Boyle and Sergeant Nick Emmons, with the Sherman Police Department, 
arrived on the scene and encountered both Brian and David downstairs. The officers were informed that Amanda was upstairs. They ran up there and found her lying on the floor of the bedroom closet. She had markings on her neck, was slightly discolored, but very warm to the touch. Amanda had pulseless electrical activity, meaning her heart had electricity, but it was not beating. Sherman EMS came on the scene at about 7.25 p.m. and were assisted by the officers in pulling Amanda out from the closet and into the bedroom so that CPR could be performed. Sergeant Emmons noticed a small black power cord tied to the closet rod. One end was intact, and the other looked to be broken, allegedly when Brian released Amanda. Shortly after, Officer Aviles arrived on the scene and encountered Brian on the couch crying. He pointed toward the stairs and said, She's up there. While Amanda was taken away in an ambulance, Corporal Boyle informed his fellow officers that he'd previously received complaints from Amanda's family that there was a domestic abuse situation at hand. He had been referring to a time when Kimberly and her husband had contacted the police the previous year when Brian was assaulting Amanda. According to Kimberly, Amanda had told her over the phone that Brian was being physically violent. Kimberly and Justin got in the car and headed over to assist, calling 911 on their way. But their request for assistance was denied, as dispatch refused to send anyone to the home, and Kimberly was told that 911 will not dispatch officers unless an assault is being witnessed. But according to Corporal Boyle, Sherman PD should have responded based on protocol and laws concerning domestic violence. He also told Kimberly and Justin that when Amanda was ready to leave the relationship, he would assist and that Brian would be picked up on outstanding warrants in order to allow Amanda a safe escape. But that plan never came to fruition. And now, Boyle was standing in the very house where police should have been dispatched months earlier. Neighbor Ada Thompson told the officers that she had information, and Officer Aviles was directed to speak with her. Ada's statement was recorded, and in it, she said that Amanda knocked on her door around 5.15 p.m., asking to use the phone. She wanted to call her friend Amber. Here is part of Ada's statement, where she talks about an injury her husband noticed on Amanda. In the meantime, she had a bruise here. She had bruises on her chest? Uh, oh, yeah, she has a bruise in her chest right here. Okay. My husband says she has a bruise in her chest because, you know, I didn't pay attention because, I mean, I was looking at her face. And she, I asked her, what's going on? Why? Is, she said I was used for a punching bag. How did she say? How long did she say? One, what did she say? Two days or whatever? What day? Two days ago? Yes, she said last night. Okay. She said last, last night. Last night. I mean, it was already bruised, so I don't think it could have been last night. Yeah. No, it, it looked already brown, black in here. Like, and she said, like always. She said, whatever day, I thought she said two days ago, but like always. I was used as a punching bag. And, you know, I had, we had to go. And so I told her, I said, are you okay? Because we had somebody came and robbed our truck last okay. night, too. 
and we called the car, the police, and they said, no, we can't come yet. And I asked her, do you hear anything? She said, no, I didn't, because, you know, they're right there with the window open. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's pretty much it. And she went in, and she was pretty upset. So she went, was she crying? She was, yeah. Okay. She was just really upset. I mean, like, and I asked her, are you okay? And she said, I'll be okay. But it's nothing I can do because I can't okay. get in there with him. Back at the house, Brian told Officer Aviles the following. He said he got home from work at 6 o'clock. He saw that Amanda's pink bag was downstairs, and he went up to find her. He looked around the bedroom but didn't see Amanda. He checked the closet. Nothing. According to Brian, a short time later he checked the closet again and saw his girlfriend sitting on the ground with a black electrical cord around her neck. He told the officer that he removed the cord from Amanda's neck and went to get David for help. He also told the officer that Amanda had consumed a lot of alcohol the previous night. Officer Aviles noted that there were numerous empty 24-ounce cans of natural ice around the room. Crime scene photos show this as well. Next, Officer Aviles spoke with roommate David in the kitchen. David said he came home from work at 5 p.m. and saw a pink bag on the couch that he believed belonged to Amanda. He went upstairs and saw that Amanda's and Brian's bedroom door was closed. He went back downstairs to his bedroom and, at 6 o'clock, heard Brian come home and go upstairs, calling Amanda's name. He then heard Brian shout, Oh my God, before coming back down and pounding on David's bedroom door. David opened his door and Brian was standing there panicked. The two men went upstairs and David saw Amanda lying in the closet unconscious. She was on her back with her knees and feet close to the wall. Amanda was unresponsive and CPR was attempted while the men dialed 911. David told Officer Aviles that Amanda had a problem with alcohol and would get, quote, crazy when she drank. After the officer got David's statement, he was advised that Detective Jones was en route and would be taking over the investigation. Officer Dutton, who arrived on the scene for backup, also spoke with Brian, who said he'd last spoken to Amanda that morning before he left the home for work. When he arrived back at approximately 6 p.m., he saw her bag, the one she usually took to work. He picked it up and brought it upstairs to look for her. He looked in the bathroom and told Officer Dutton that he glanced in the closet but couldn't find her. Next, he went downstairs, calling her name before returning back upstairs, where he again looked in the closet. This time, Brian noticed Amanda's feet sticking out from the clothing on the left-hand side of the closet. That's when he said he realized that Amanda was hanging. A cord was wrapped around her neck with the other end of it over the clothing rod. He said he grabbed the cord and moved Amanda to the floor when her hands and fingers began to move. So he began CPR. According to Brian, at one point, Amanda had gasped. And that was when he alerted David to call 911. Finally, Brian told Officer Dutton that Amanda had attempted suicide about six months earlier by taking pills. This information is confirmed by Kimberly, who said her sister called her after ingesting the pills and said 
She was scared and didn't want to die. Crime scene photos also show an iron with the cord cut off, and seemingly that cord tied in a knot around the closet clothing rod. A box cutter lie on the floor, which was allegedly used by Brian to cut the cord off the rod. En route to the hospital, Amanda was revived and her pulse returned, but she had suffered severe brain damage. Here, Kimberly talks about the day she got the call that her baby's sister had tried to die by suicide. And this all started from the night before that he found her stash of money that she was putting away to leave him. And he lost his shit and he's like, and we told her to be out by seven or he was going to choke and kill her. And that was the night before. And she believed him. I mean, I, I believe that she believed him because she didn't go to work. And she spent the whole entire day preparing to leave. She had called me that morning <clears throat> to get Amber's phone number. And I didn't answer the phone. Actually, I was just like, I didn't recognize the number. She left a voicemail saying, hey, I'm looking for Amber's phone number. Can you send it to me? Well, within that time, she had texted me, hey, I got Amber's number. Tell Jordan I'll call him later. Love y'all. And that was the last time that we texted. And this happened May the 14th. We were at a softball game about two hours away from Sherman. And I have a missed call from Amanda's phone, which was Brian's phone. And I'm like, I'll just have Jordan call her back later, you know, because we're in the middle of a softball tournament. And Jordan kind of walks out into the parking lot and I go, hey, you want to call your mom back? She just called and he goes, yeah, let me call her. He's all excited. And so we get in the car and he's like, what? And like, he doesn't understand. And I could hear Brian's voice on the phone and I take the phone. I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like delirious, crazy. And the, a policeman takes the phone and says, hey, your sister tried to take her life. She's in the hospital. Y'all need to come this way. And I'm like, you know, kind of just went into... Uh, a blur. As we're on the road heading to Sherman, that's when the officer, Sam Boyle, called my husband's phone and told us what had happened. He goes, hey, you know, I just want to let you know what's going on. It doesn't look good. Y'all need to go ahead and get here as fast as you can. I did call in a detective to talk, to look into the case because of the history. And they talked on the phone for a little bit, and I'm trying to eavesdrop, but it didn't sound good. You know, like it was It was grave, you know. So we get to the hospital and we go into the ICU and the ICU nurse looks at us. She knew my husband and she's like, what what are y'all doing here? We're like, oh, that's Kimberly's sister that's here. You know, we're here to see her. And she's like, oh, what's her name? We're like, Amanda. Like, well, her boyfriend just told us she doesn't have any family. And like, she goes, I'm very confused. We look in there and there's five men standing around her bed. And we're like, we're her family. They called us and told us what happened. And Justin was like, I want him escorted out. I want him out of her room now. Because we kind of suspected he could have done it. So he was escorted out by security. And I stayed at our bedside, you know, for the next seven days. But those first couple of days, I just was struggling with, I can't believe she tried to take her life and didn't call me. I can't believe she was this desperate and didn't call me. Like, just thinking that was the reason. Kimberly stayed by her sister's side, trying to come to terms with the situation, which was looking grave. The next day, Friday, 
Brian texted Kimberly several times asking for updates on Amanda's condition. And by the following day, Saturday, Kimberly was getting a feeling in the pit of her stomach that there was more to the story. Saturday, they take her neck collar off, and I'm like, taken aback by her injuries. And I'm like, what? Like, that doesn't look like hanging. Like, I'm so confused. And the nurse was like, did you know that her blood alcohol was 0.38? And I'm like, what? How could she even been awake enough to do that? So I'm automatically going to this, oh my gosh, I got to get the detective here. Like, has he seen her injuries? Does he understand what's going on? We're finding out that her brain injury was non-reversible. Like she was, didn't have her reflexes and so we're like, oh my gosh, she's going to die. You know, we realized what was going on, like her neck injuries, that she was probably not going to make it to the weekend. Brian's probably going to flee. We started calling the police department because Detective Jones was not answering his phone. Called the police department. And they're like, oh, he's off on the weekends. You need to call back on Monday. And I'm like, this is very important. We think my sister was mur- murdered, attempted murder. We don't think she hung herself. Well, ma'am, you're just going to call back Monday. I'm like, what? We couldn't get him up there. He wouldn't, he never came back to the hospital. We had to go to the police department to see him, to meet with him. I'm thinking whatever I can do to preserve evidence, to get get a statement from Brian. Like, I didn't know what had happened to this point with the investigation. So me and my friend started taking pictures of Amanda's neck, what we were seeing. I invited Brian up to see Amanda. I'm like, hey, do you want to come see her? I'm sure she'd like for you to be here so I could get a recording of his statement because I'd had no idea what had happened. I started calling a judge that I knew. I'm like, hey, you know, I need we need an autopsy, but I can't get anybody to order one or we're going to pay for it out of our pocket. And he's like, I can't get involved because if it comes before my court, I can't get involved in it. It was like frantic, like two days there just being frantic. The... <clears throat> House supervisor contacted the local justice of the peace, which was Judge Atherton, and said this family is kind of suspicious that this was not a suicide. You know, if she passes away, we need to get an okay for an autopsy. And he told her that, well, based on her past medical history, her past mental health history and alcoholism, there's not going to be an autopsy done. So somebody's already talked within the department on this Saturday night. I mean, somebody's already talked. And so we go into this mode of like, what do we do now? Because I'm pulling up the laws. I'm like, by law, she's entitled to an autopsy. They're like, well, if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. Amanda passed away on Wednesday, May 20th, 2015, nearly a week after being admitted into the hospital. Coming up next on Method and Madness, the conclusion. Kimberly devises a plan to record what Brian has to say about Amanda's alleged suicide attempt. And as an investigation begins, Brian disconnects his phone and flees the country. In the United States alone, about 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. 
one in four women and one in seven men have become victims of severe physical violence, such as beating, burning, or strangling by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Help is available. Check the show notes for more information. Thank you to Kimberly Mullins, and thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.